What we see and what we seem are but a dream, a dream within a dream. So I'm thinking, how on earth can I tell a story where there's five people who go up the mountain and one gets rescued and then there are two people who are hunting for them and a schoolmistress and all that sort of stuff. How do you do it with five voices? So straight away I'm thinking about it not just as a piece of uh, storytelling which is then acted out and I was thinking about it more and more as a story which you can read or recite or retell like a myth or a folk story or a fairy tale or something like that. My name's Tom Wright. I'm the writer of Picnic at Hanging Rock which is playing at Malthouse. Uh, my full role is I'm the associate artist at Belvoir Street Theatre in Sydney and I'm here as a guest of Malthouse Melbourne. Picnic at Hanging Rock, that classic novel, that iconic movie, has finally got its turn as a stage production. Artsmitten sat down with Tom Wright to have a chat about the challenges of adapting such a famous novel and how a work of fiction can turn into myth and maybe even history at a place like Hanging Rock. It's a work of fiction, but it's really rare in that it's crossed over into the world of myth or even history for a lot of people. Yeah. So what do you think it is about this novel in particular that's made it you know, have that sort of leap? Oh, how long have we got? The, <laughs> the, the great thing, I mean, what I like to say on my pat little phrase is if Picking and Hanging Rock didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. It's because it's become one of the um, stories which, as you say, has crossed over into mythology. And I think what it's about, I think what it's about is that it encapsulates a whole lot of anxieties and neuroses that the patriarchal, colonial, white settlement of Australia embodies and has still sitting inside our social bodies so to speak and there's a lot of stuff going on there about fear of female sexuality fear of um, not genuine ownership of the landscape all of that kind of stuff is really present and really strong in the in the narrative and so a lot of people um, can't engage with things that are deep down inside our psyches or our souls unless they believe them to be real. I think that's particularly true of a lot of men, mm. that they want history to be factual and real. It's the same reasons why they don't like to read a lot of fiction. They like things to be real and strong and Especially bold. Especially fiction by women. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and but and Lindsay's a genius. She, and this is she, really, she wasn't a prolific writer. She wrote a number of things, but this is her only sort of famous novel. And the more you read it, the more you realise it's not just a book about some girls who, in her imagination, go missing. It's actually a book about profound Australian social anxiety. And so I think it's as a result, people like to. Th- um, it, she writes it in such a realistic way, and she does play this t- trick that they like to feel that it's real because it feels like it, it touches something very important. And the idea that it's just made up somehow takes away its impact. Well, I don't think it does, but for some people I think that's why. And I have the same experience. You'll often run to people and they'll say, oh, yeah, some girls went missing and she based a novel on it. And I say, no, actually, no girls went missing. No one went missing there at all. But all through white Australian history, adolescents and children wandered off into the bush and were never seen again. It's mm. a core part of our, our storytelling. And somehow she got it all into one bundle in a way that felt right. Yeah, in a way that really resonated with mm. people. And I think what you're saying is really interesting too, our fear of the landscape. Yeah. And even the Australian landscape has got a real haunting feel about it. You don't ever sort of feel 
alone out in the bush. It's like it's got its own sort of presence. Do you think that's true of Hanging Rock? Like, when's the last time you were out there? I can't remember. It would have been a couple of years ago, but I grew up in Victoria and it's very much a presence. But we can't skirt around this issue. Indigenous history in this landscape goes back tens of thousands of years, quite possibly well and truly over 35,000 years of, and in its current form of the Kulin people the various Kulin people, and in the case of um, Hanging Rock, the northernmost limits of the Wurundjeri um, zone. And so there is tens of thousands of years of human experience of interrelationship with the landscape. So sometimes when we say, oh, human beings and their relationship to Australia, we mean white. And sometimes we mean black. And that's what's the the journey that I think everybody's on who isn't Indigenous in Australia is we're learning how to live inside a landscape that was actually moulded by and in sync with human beings. It's not something necessarily foreign. It's more that we don't know how to read it. It's like coming across a language or a book or a system of signs that we're not quite familiar with. And the Kulin people, for them, Hanging Rock was a very important site. The site They saw it as a female space, but as a result, in a kind of logical way, it was a space of male initiation. So young boys were taken up on Hanging Rock. And when they went up, they were boys. And when they came down, were injury boys and so on, when they came down, they were men. And so it's always been, and this is for thousands of years, hundreds and hundreds of generations, it's always been a place of transformation, a transformation from youth to adulthood, from illness to wellness maybe, Uh, maybe from one zone or one portal or one time and space to another. And the Indigenous people had that strong relationship with it as a space, whereas white people can barely scratch the surface. Sometimes things can be seen and sometimes things can't be seen. And I'm not arguing that there's a kind of a psychic presence necessarily there. I'm just talking about the way very subtle things like geology and astronomy and the movement of the climate can all affect things and come to a head in certain places. It's a, a beautiful and astonishing and very spiritual place, but you need to have your ears open and your mind attuned to be able to understand it. And you talked about it being a female space. Yeah. Do you think that Joan Lindsay sort of latched onto that or knew about that? If she did, she did so instinctively because she she didn't... I mean, a lot of our knowledge of the way in which um, Kulin wisdom manifests across the landscape has actually been very much a product of recent years. And when she was writing in the 60s, for her, Hanging Rock was... Uh, she, she almost had no relationship to it as an Indigenous site. In fact, there's only one Aboriginal character in her entire book. So this is a very white story. It's a very white story about how white people dealt with what it was to suddenly be speaking English and drinking tea out of China cups, but in this landscape where fire could suddenly emerge seemingly out of nowhere and wipe an entire community out. You know, nature, as the Europeans ex- experienced it in the early days, was a virulent and dangerous thing. It wasn't a, a gentle thing. But I think what Lindsay could instinctively grasp is that there are certain places in the land where you feel like they're almost portals or gates to different types of meaning and that's a very familiar notion to anyone who comes from any traditional culture all over the world is that certain sites are sacred and they're not just sacred because people have decided it 
that's, it, it's the case. It's because inside them they have a certain quality. So maybe in the case of Hanging Rock, you're on a volcanic plain, but it looms up out of the what would have been the bush and the grassland in those days. So it would have had a presence, it would have had a kind of a physical presence hanging over, almost like a, a parent watching over you. But also when you climbed it, it had these big fissures and chasms and caves which went down deep, in some cases over 90 metres, deep down into the volcanic um, underbelly, so to speak. And as a result, it was much like a place where you could enter into the afterlife, the underworld, another space or time. And then you think about what the title means, hanging rock. It's not just about a rock hanging in over your heads you know, in an odd, precarious, precipitous way. Maybe it's also hanging in time, the idea of a rock that's caught in the moment of falling to ground. And uh, Lindsay's big concern as a writer was about time and the, its relativity. She used to claim that she could stop clocks just by being in the room. If pe- people's watches would stop working whenever she was around, she was a bit she was a bit kooky in some respects. And so, yeah, that sense that actually there's a big time, geological time, millions of years happening at the same time as human time, which is very, very quick and very fast, like a little insect, all in the one spot. That's a big theme in her book. And how did you go about interpreting that sort of shifting of time on the stage? Well, theatre does that really well when it works. You can get that sense with just a simple lighting cue, although it only takes four seconds, in the audience's mind can evoke the idea of the passing of an entire day as shadows lengthen and so on. So time can work very fluidly and elastically in theatre if it's done well. The big issue is the relationship between language and Joan Lindsay's idea of the relativity of time and what actors can do. And so the script for the Malthouse production of Picnic at Hanging Rock is like a, a long poem, a poem of, um, of white understanding of landscape, of missing, of loss, of exile. And I've tried to get across that sense through a kind of a, a, a poetic language to get across a sense of the story. Right. It'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about the presence of the rock itself? Because I think I read somewhere there isn't actually mm. a rock. You haven't just thrown a giant rock on stage. So yeah. how do you go about presenting the rock? Well, this is the, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like I was talking about before. The rock on one level is a physical solid object, but on another level it's an idea. And so the rock is evoked through landscape and the landscape is evoked through language. So the language is the rock and the first 20 minutes of the play are the five actors through the use of language painting the picture of what happened in this imaginary day in 1900. So there's no physical rock on stage because sometimes there are things that actually shouldn't be presented but should be imagined. In the same way as you probably wouldn't, if you were to do a stage version of the Azaria Chamberlain story, you'd probably the last thing you'd want to see would be airs rock there in the distance or a depiction of Uluru's stone finish. In some ways, actually, it needs to um, exist in its absence if that doesn't sound too paradoxical. So, yes, there's no actual evocation of the rock. But what there is in this production is a designed idea which represents uh, the idea of a presiding spirit or thought or something which is beyond the physical realm, something which is metaphysical. And in this case, it's a um, sculptural object which hangs in space, almost like an idea, something that hangs or maybe is falling. So the uh, more metaphorical idea of hanging is stronger here than the actual rock itself. 
So you're adapting the book rather than the film. Yeah. But when people think of Picnic at Hanging Rock, I guess they think of the the pan pipes, yeah. the pipes, yeah. yeah, and the and the white laces and the long dresses <laughs> yeah. and everything like that. So even though you're adapting the novel, are you influenced at all by? The film? Well, you can't help but be influenced by the film because, it's, as we were discussing before, it's iconic. Many, many people have seen it, not just in Australia, all over the world. If you go up to Hanging Rock now, there'll be Japanese tourists and so on. So it's a very widespread view. But luckily, the, the film is actually quite an accurate um, transposition of the novel. So, for instance, iconically, you've got those um, beautiful white um, Edwardian schoolgirl dresses that all the girls wear to the picnic. We have one costume like that that captures the spirit of that age, but we don't depict it all be, or in, in its entirety because we also um, have other characters to play. So, yes, there are moments which resemble the film quite closely and then there are moments where it diverts from the film quite a bit as well mm. so if you know the film you'll certainly recognise everything that happens on this stage but mm. it won't quite be the same thing something terrible has happened three of your young ladies and, uh, and Miss McCraw are missing on the rock whether you've read the novel or watched the film we do recommend you see the play it's a standalone work. I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. The music and lighting really made me feel the horror and suspense of it. It transported the whole stage and the actors and the audience to the rock. So Picnic at Hanging Rock doesn't exactly have an answer, no. even though there was a lost chapter, wasn't there? Mm. Well, that's a, that's, a re- that's a really delicate territory. No one's sure if the lost chapter was actually written by Joan Lindsay or if someone else from a publishing firm wrote it. But I, in any event, a little while ago, this so-called lost chapter finally came to light and was printed, and it does provide an answer to what might have happened. But I, I would suggest that reading the so-called lost chapter is an unsatisfying experience. The whole thing works much better if there is no solution and if no one knows what happened to these women. Do you think that's why it's been such a source of fascination and ever since because it didn't have an answer because people can keep guessing and keep theorising and... Yeah, and that goes back to your initial and original question about the extent to which it's real. If this was a real event... It would be a bit like Jack the Ripper or one of those historical events where there's this endless quest for what really happened. But given that it is an act of fiction, actually the, there is no answer possible. But what's interesting is over the decades and over the years, answers start to change. So early on when she published her novel or when the film was around, a lot of the focus was on maybe they were murdered, maybe they were kidnapped, maybe these two men with their strange homoerotic relationship are involved in some way. A lot of the suggestions tended to be either that kind of thing, there was a crime, there was murders, or other people speculated about things like UFO visitations, no taken up. What's become more commonly spoken about in the last couple of decades, thanks to movements in physics and space and time and so on, is more parallel universe theories and ideas about portals into other spaces and times or about the relativity of how time might work as if the girls were still up there. And so you get a lot of kind of kooky theories moving in that direction. And what I guess I'm saying is is that Hanging Rock, Picnic at Hanging Rock is not just a novel of a story anymore, it's a vessel into which we can pour our contemporary concerns. So, like your question about queer readings, 
the solutions that people offer to picnic at Hanging Rock dependent upon the time that they're living in and the way they view Australia at that time. And maybe in 25 years' time, there'll be a whole new set of concerns, a whole new set of anxieties, and a whole new set of potential solutions to this mythical problem. When people throw their own, like you say, contemporary concerns onto um, a piece that was written 50 years ago, mm. yeah, it says a lot more about the contemporary society than yeah. it does about the original text. Yeah, this is what I'm saying about theatre, and this is one of the things why theatre, when it works well, like it does down at Malthouse, which is you know in many ways the most exciting company in Australia. Um, that's what it does. It 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 asks questions of the past in order that the future can become richer via a dynamic present. And that's, yeah, that's a, one of the things that we set out to do. That's why you adapt old novels or look at old films or something like that. There's a, It's never just to revive a corpse, it's to actually try and tell a story in a very fresh way. That was Tom Wright speaking to Art Smitten with this week's story coming to you straight from Hanging Rock. Picnic at Hanging Rock, adapted from Joan Lindsay's iconic novel by playwright Tom Wright, is shown at the Malthouse Theatre until the 20th of March. The Malthouse do cheap tickets for under 30s, so be sure to check it out.